When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Colin uh, Kaepernick and what he's done. You know, a lot of people really despise that sort of thing, but you know what? Too bad. I, I feel sorry for what I would consider narrow-minded individuals that want to keep the quote-unquote power structure intact. You know, I think everybody should be equal. And in this country, we're losing ground in terms of equality. Absolutely losing ground since the new presidential administration or current presidential administration has been in place. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talked to retired NASCAR driver Bill Lester, one of the only African-Americans in the history of the sports. That doesn't even give him enough credit for what he accomplished. He's the first African-American to race in NASCAR's Bush Series, to participate in the Nextel Cup, and to win a pole position. He was the first black driver to appear on a cereal box. Thank you, Honey Nut Cheerios. And we will speak to him about his journey. I also have some choice words about the retirement of Andrew Luck, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, and more. But first, Bill Lester. And so I just wanted to jump right in, and I, I really want to introduce you to my audience and ask you, first and foremost, how you became a NASCAR driver. How did that happen? Well, it truly was not an overnight scenario. It took a long time to become a NASCAR driver, and I really had no ambition of being a NASCAR driver when I knew I had a passion for racing. I thought that when I was very young and when I saw racing on TV— I'd eventually wind up being an Indy car driver, like racing at the Indy 500, or a sports car driver, like racing at the 24 Hours of Daytona here in the States, or the 24 Hours of Le Mans over in Europe. But lo and behold, as the sport developed and I grew up, the biggest footprint in terms of motorsports here in the States became NASCAR. And there was no ifs, ands, and buts. There's no question that if you wanted to be at the top level of racing, you wanted to be in NASCAR. So I knew that that is kind of where I needed to turn my attention to, is to try to become a NASCAR driver. But unlike most of the people that um, aspire to be race car drivers, I didn't grow up racing. You know, my father took me to a race when I was eight years old, just shy of eight years old in Northern California, which is where I grew up. And I knew that racing was something that excited me. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with speed and I loved cars. And being a race car driver is kind of like the natural marriage of those two obsessions. And so when my father introduced me to it and it kind of bit me, you know, the bug bit me then, it just took me forever <laughs> to finally realize my passion. And what I mean by that is that um, as a teenager, I and I first got my driver's license. I was doing all sorts of crazy things on the street. I kind of like term it the Fast and the Furious before it was a movie. Street <laughs> racing, doing all sorts of things I didn't, you know, I don't condone. But sort of like Rebel Without a Cause, doing races on uh, abandoned uh, roadways, things like that. Abandoned? I wish they were abandoned. I'm uh -oh. talking about city streets. <laughs> I grew up in the Oakland Hills of Northern California. And Skyline Boulevard is kind of like what Mulholland, Mulholland Drive is to Southern Californians. It's, you know, a place that's got wide sweeping bends and it's a really a 
two lane in each direction, city street, you know, but very fast. And I basically took my first street car and was kind of one of the kings of Skyline Boulevard and doing all sorts of illegal street racing up there and what have you. And so, yeah, you know, it wasn't the way it was supposed to happen, the way you're supposed to really learn how to race. The way that drivers start out nowadays, they start out in go-karts. They start out in their single digit years. You know, by the Mm -hmm. time you're seven or eight, you're already in a go-kart competing against kids, you know, in your area locally and even nationally. And families will spend upwards of $100,000 to try to get their single digit age kid a championship in karting. I mean, it's insane how much money it costs. Well, my parents were like, okay, son, you know, it's great that you have this obsession and love for cars and speed, but uh, we're not in any kind of financial position to support that. So good luck, right? So what I did to scratch my itch was take this street car of mine. I heavily modified it with, you know, suspension updates and tires and brakes and roll bars and stuff like that, just for some sense of of safety and security. And I was out there street racing. But lo and behold, I was told, listen, before you you have skill, Bill, and before you kill yourself or somebody else on the streets doing this illegal racing, you got to take it to a racetrack. But, you know, I wasn't in a financial position to do that, right? But I was exposed to computers and technology. And this is kind of like the beginning of the high tech boom. And so I went to engineering school. I went to Cal Berkeley, got an electrical engineering and computer science degree. And essentially with that first paycheck, once I started to work for Hewlett Packard, I went to the racetrack. And Sears Point in Sonoma and Laguna Seca and Monterey, Laguna Seca and Monterey, California were like my home tracks. And I quickly realized that not only did I love it, I was good at it because my first year I was Northern California Rookie of the Year. The year after that, I was Northern California um, racing champion for my class. And And this is all as you're working as an engineer? You're doing this like on the side? Absolutely. I was living for the weekends. Mm. You know, I started out at HP Hewlett Packard as a software development engineer and then quickly within four years became a research and development project manager. So I had lots of responsibility to, you know, a couple dozen engineers doing software development. But I couldn't wait for the weekends because then I could go out there and race and scratch that itch, you know, live that dream that I really wanted to to realize. And so, yeah, I had lived, I lived a dual life. And I thought that as soon as I got, you know, some of these accolades on the local level in terms of, you know, the, the uh, championships and such, I would quickly become a professional race car driver. And nothing could be further from the truth because I realized the politics of motorsports and the business of motorsports was something that I couldn't really grab my arms around because I didn't have those entrees to resources. How would you describe those to a layman like uh, like myself or some of my listeners? Like what are the politics and business of motorsports? Yeah, you know, kind of like any stick and ball sport, there's politics first, business second, and sport third. But with motorsports, it's almost a slightly different slant on that. And what I mean by that is that in stick and ball sports, there is a very strictly defined ladder that you climb to get to the top. You know, whether you start out in, you know, Pop Warner football or whatever organized basketball leagues are, or even with baseball, it's easy to climb that ladder that is established to get you to the top rungs. In motorsports, you can come from anywhere, any discipline in motorsports to try to get to the professional level, whether it's on dirt, you know, running around in a midget or a sprint car, or if it's pavement racing or, you know, whatever. There's so many different disciplines in motorsports to get to the top. And the thing with motorsports is you have to bring a checkbook as well as talent. And nowadays it's absolutely almost more checkbook than it is talent. Um, But with uh, stick and ball sports, you bring your talent first because usually the leagues that you play in and such are funded that you don't have to bring a big checkbook to pursue, you know, climbing the ladder. It's well-defined, you know, the scouts and all that kind of stuff can see um, how you're doing and you don't have to strike these big checks that I was talking about, like even at the go-karting level in your single digit year at six figures, you know? And so it's very different. The politics of motorsports are that you have to be in the room 
to meet the people that are going to help you succeed financially. What I mean by that is you got to kiss the babies and, and shake the hands of these people that are well-heeled, well-funded, are the CEOs of companies, the CMOs, chief marketing officers of companies, people in you know, positions of power that can strike checks for you so that you can race. Because what happens in racing is that the team owners are not responsible these days for providing the funding for the teams. They provide the infrastructure and the drivers show up with their checkbook and their helmet in hand. It's a very wow. crazy business scenario. Wow. A lot of the drivers- Sounds very 21st now, century. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the drivers are out there now, they are what I call trust fund kids. They come as you know the sons of you know uh, the CEOs and the CMOs and the you know chief technology officers of these major companies. These are not like second and third generation drivers for the most part that come up through the you know the family of the sport. You know, coming up as a kid that's turning wrenches on their father's cars and stuff. These are kids that are like you know I want to be a race car driver. They tell their parents you know that's what I want to be and. They're in a family dynamic that allows them to compete. And so that's the politics. You have to be in the room so that you have the opportunity to talk and to and impress the folks that can hopefully open these doors. Then there's the business of the sport, which is that once you're in the room, then you have to justify to these people that have these businesses and have a board of directors and such that they should be spending their marketing dollars on you. There are so many different directions that a company can, can turn into for sports marketing dollars. Motorsports is just one of many. It could be pro beach volleyball. It could be you know, extreme sports. It could be you know, stick and ball sports. Why should we spend our hard earned dollars here as a, as a corporation on motorsports? What is our return on investment, right? And so that's the business. Once you are able to convince the company that this is where they should spend their marketing dollars, they're going to get that ROI, then you finally get to do what it is you want to do, which is race a car. And so it is so difficult to get through there. And so many drivers that don't come from money are discouraged and they give up. Now, I just took no for an answer. And you didn't take no for an answer. And wow, <laughs> given right. the obstacles, that's, that's, that's incredible. Well, the insane thing too, Dave, is that I did it at a very late age. You know, you asked me initially, how did I get into NASCAR? I didn't start racing in NASCAR until I was 40 years old. I'm starting my NASCAR career as a professional race car driver when most professional athletes are retiring from their chosen, chosen profession. I, with my wife's support at 37 years of age, left the success, and I say success with air quotes, of a professional technology career to pursue what I really wanted to do because she allowed me to just pursue my dream. She said, listen, either you devote all your time and attention to it, you leave the eight to five, you leave the thing that's distracting you, you put all your time and energy and effort and focus into making it happen. Or say after three years, which is the time frame we gave ourselves, that you gave it your best shot, but it wasn't meant to be and you go back to the reality of high tech. So I went on a leave of absence, pursued all of you know, my energy and, and committed myself to making this dream a reality and was able to, after three years, I mean, I was at the end of my rope, finally break through and become a professional race car driver in NASCAR from Northern California to the deep South in an environment that I never thought I would find myself in, racing in NASCAR. Well, I got to ask you, did it ever occur to you about the obstacle of being an African-American man in this overwhelmingly white sport? I mean, what did you, was that ever part of the calculation? Like, how am I going to overcome that aspect of this? And did that end up being um, an obstacle or a challenge? Absolutely. You know, unequivocally. The fact is, like I said, I grew up in Northern California I grew up in a high tech environment, you know, effectively, you know, white collar professional. And I'm trying to apply myself to move to the deep south to race in an environment that I have no familiarity with. When I was a kid and I saw NASCAR on ABC's Wide World of Sports, you know, the Daytona 500, the Southern 500, I saw 
a bunch of guys running around in a circle, um, trying to stay off a concrete wall. I couldn't understand why they considered that to be racing. I consider racing to be an extension of driving on the street, which means you turn right, you turn left, you upshift, you downshift, you accelerate, you brake. You don't drop it into fourth gear and turn left, trying not to hit a concrete wall. And I watched it, but then I saw all these rebel flags, the Confederate flag. And then I saw what the driver, or I should say, I heard what the driver sounded like. They didn't sound like me, they didn't look like me. And it was a very intimidating experience for me because I didn't have any exposure to it. You know, the Southern culture is, is very much a one of, you know, ma'am and sir, and just a deep rooted Southern culture, which I had no familiarity with. And it was very difficult when I and my wife committed to move to the Southeast because my ship was coming in and I was going to become a professional race car driver in NASCAR. It was a cultural shock to come to the Southeast. And one of the things we did when we looked at the Southeast, we looked at trying to call the major metropolitan area of the Southeast home because NASCAR is rooted in North Carolina, Charlotte and Mooresville to be specific. And when we looked at the Charlotte area, we looked at each other and said, we can't commit to this because it was so different than what we were used to. It just didn't seem like a big city. My wife was born and raised in San Francisco. And like I said, I'm in the Bay Area as well. We're used to hustle and bustle and you know, just uh, a fast paced life and a very different way of life. And when we came to the Southeast and we saw it, we were like, oh my gosh. Fortunately, I was exposed to the Atlanta, Georgia area. And that's where we decided to settle because for the Southeast, Atlanta seemed to be the most like home. You know, is big city from the standpoint of a lot of cultural diversity, a lot of different things to do. Um, it was a comforting feeling. And so we committed to Atlanta and that's very atypical for a NASCAR driver. Most all the drivers are right around home base, which is where the race shops are. So I didn't do that. And so even once I got entrenched in the Southeast, it was very difficult to, you know, um, feel a part of the community. I, I really never did. I, I always felt like an outsider because I spoke differently. I thought about different things. I communicated differently. It was very, very um, shocking because, you know, initially I was using like what the teams, race teams were saying is big words. They said, listen, Bill, you know, Simple, you know, make it simple, you know, don't uh, use these multisyllabic words that you're using, you know, because I mean, I was used to um, our R&D meetings with, you know, a lot of uh, guys in the room that, uh, you know, were uh, M had their MBAs and mostly and PhDs and stuff like that. And I'm dealing with race teams where a lot of the personnel hadn't even finished college, had, let alone had they gone to college. A number of them hadn't even finished high school. And so it was really a very different environment for me. And I just never felt really comfortable in it. I always felt like an outsider. Were, were they, if I could just, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, yeah, I gotta yeah. know, like, were, were they, do you feel like they were more accepting than you thought of a, of a black driver, less accepting, or was it about what you expected? What was that like? Yeah, so it's across the board. Some of the guys that I worked with and such were just very welcoming, you know, and I was surprised by that. But I never was able to, quote unquote, let my hair down. I was always somewhat on guard because I saw there were others that I'd worked with that didn't want me there. And it was clear they didn't want me there. Although I earned my respect in the garage area, which is all you can ask for as a race car driver, you know, you just never felt like everybody embraced you. And, you know, it was a situation where, I would have been silly to believe that I was one of the guys. I was always, you know, somewhat different, but I was accepted as well because I was bringing sponsorship. And so I was able to provide a livelihood for these, you know, uh, guys, these crew members and such, and, and guys in the garage area that were making their living because I was able to fund a team to be able to race at, you know, there and, and employ them. You know, they had jobs because of what it is I was able to provide financially. So despite what they might've thought about me off the racetrack or outside of the, you know, the garage area, um, they either accepted me or they at least tolerated me. 
Now, were there any drivers who went out of their way to act as allies to help you feel more comfortable in these in these surroundings as the trailblazer that you were? Went out of their way? No. Um, I, I'd say that a number of my teammates uh, were helpful and they accepted me, but went out of their way? No, none of my teammates went out of their way. And, I, you know, I think maybe some of that can be attributed to the fact that I didn't live in North Carolina where the majority of them lived. You know, I mean, I couldn't hang out with them for the most part because I was in Atlanta, you know, and so I was commuting to the shop and I was commuting to the races and such and not coming from where they were. So, you know, going out at night after being at the race shop and having a beer or having a dinner or whatever, that's something that just wasn't feasible because I didn't live there, you know, so I would come in and spend time in the shop and we would go out and test, you know, to get ready for upcoming races. But was there ever a real bond there? No, because at the end of the day, another race car driver, even in the same team, is competition. You know, you're helping each other so that the whole organization is better. But when it's all said and done, you're just somebody else that they have to beat. So there's really no real camaraderie. Mm. Now, you said you earned your respect in the garage. What, what, what does that mean? Well, that means that the you know, crew members and the team owners and such like that, they knew I could drive. They knew that I was there for a reason, and that is that I could do what needed to be done on the racetrack. It wasn't as if you know, I was just given some sponsorship and I was out there tooling around. You know, I've had pole positions. I've led races. Um, and, and I could carry, you know, I could carry my weight. I could hold my own. And so that's what I mean by I was respected in the garage area. I wasn't just out there as a diversity candidate or, or somebody who was, you know, just trying to move the needle as far as, you know, race relations or, you know, race infiltration was concerned. I could steer a race car. They knew that I could, I could go out there and get the job done. So that's what I mean by, you know, I gained my respect. There are some drivers that are out there they just show up with a checkbook and they're tooling around in the back and they're a hazard to others and they don't belong there. That was not my scenario. And you mentioned before about uh, the South and the Confederate flag. What was that like for you as a trailblazing African-American driver and seeing that ubiquitous presence of the presence, I'm sorry, of the Confederate flag when you were racing? It was intimidating to me, you know, because uh, the South, Southern culture embraces the Confederate flag. And uh, I would go to racetracks and I would see the stars and bars, you know, over there flying in the breeze. And, you know, uh, it wasn't something that made me comfortable because of the history, race history of the South and the Confederacy and what that represented. And while a lot of Southerners will argue that this is, hey, this is just our culture and what have you. That's the way I had to try to look at it, that it wasn't any, you know, um, blatant uh, message to me that, you know, they don't want me there or what have you. But I could just never feel comfortable in an environment where that whole mentality, for the most part, and culture and mindset is so prevalent. It was very difficult. And I would try to ignore it. I would think that, you know, not everybody's a racist out here. And a number of fans that would reach out to me and talk with me and ask for my autograph to my surprise would say, hey, you know, we're glad you're here. You know, you're great for the sport, blah, blah, blah. But I knew that for those one or two, I would suspect that there were a whole lot more that would probably be happier if I wasn't there. You know, NASCAR had been considered for a long time and maybe even today as the last bastion of white supremacy. Why? because it has not been infiltrated and dominated by you know, multicultural races, whether it be African-American, whether it be Hispanic, Latino. Um, we've made inroads, but we have not been able to really dominate. There has been no Venus or Serena Williams. There has been no Tiger Woods, you know, that sort of thing. So, and one of the reasons why, like I said before, is because to be competitive, you have to want for nothing. And that means that you cannot be short on finances. Money buys speed in racing. You can't have enough sponsorship. So if a cup level, which is NASCAR cup level, which is the top level, 
sponsorship is a 20 to 22 million dollar proposition a year you know um we don't we have not been able to bring that the uh only african-american driver who's racing on sunday right now is a guy by the name of daryl wallace who they nicknamed and who he is nicknamed as bubba bubba does not have 20 to 22 million dollars so he does not have the top level equipment if you don't have the top level equipment and personnel you're not going to win and so when I was like, for example, in the truck series, which is a stepping stone to cup, it's one of the national touring series, but it's not racing on Sunday. It's racing typically on Friday or Saturday. It's like a prelude to the Sunday main event. If a sponsorship there is three to two, three point two to three point five million a year, I was running around at something less than that. So was I getting the top level engines? Was I getting the best crew chiefs and and the best uh, crew? changing, you know, pit crew, changing tires and making adjustments and what have you. No, I had good stuff, but you got to have the best. You can't give up anything on the track and expect to make it up as a result of having a dearth of, you know, resources, that being a lack of sponsorship. So that's kind of what I was running around with. I was out there on the playing field, so to speak, but I wasn't um, with the best of the best. I was a quarterback out there with kind of like, you know, not a second string line, but I didn't have the all pro line, you know, so I was out there competing and I'm doing the best I could, but I didn't have everything that was necessary for me to be ultimately successful. And that has been a characteristic throughout African-Americans racing in NASCAR, whether it had been Wendell Scott when he was racing in the 60s and 70s, scrapping and scraping for um, parts and resources, whether it had been Willie T., Willie T. Ribs, when he was racing in the 80s for a handful of races, and he barely had the resources to be out there, whether it had been me in the 2000s or Bubba Wallace racing now, we are all with a lack of resources. And since we don't control those purse strings, we're always going to be at a deficit. If I was able to give you a magic wand and make you king of NASCAR, grand, uh, powerful poobah of NASCAR, and you could make the sport uh, more equitable, so it's really the best uh, drivers who uh, rise to the top and make the sport more multicultural. What would you do? I would give more people of color the opportunity to compete on a level playing field at a very young age. You're not going to find a top level superstar race car driver at a late age. When I came in the sport, at 40 years old, I was already long in the tooth. I wasn't going to be able to make up all the experience and such that was necessary at that late age because I was already dying on the vine for the most part. You have to groom a race car driver at a very young age because nowadays a cup level driver is getting there as a teenager, believe it or not. A lot of the cup level drivers are 17, 18 and, and breaking through at that age. So to be proficient, at 17, 18 years of age, you must be racing at five or six or seven years old. And the only way you're going to be able to do that and spend that six figures to be able to let, to be able to compete on a national level with equal equipment is to have the resources to be able to do that. So if I could wave that magic wand, I would be able to I would support these drivers of multi you know ethnic backgrounds at a very young age with the resources that are um, required to be on a level playing field. That's what I would do because, and, and then give them that leg up, that opportunity to compete on an equal basis throughout their career until they are able to make it to the big time. That's a huge financial requirement, commitment. And I that's also have I to, do. yeah, that's, that's, I hear you. I also have to ask you as the trailblazing athlete that you are. Uh, this has been a very interesting era the last couple of years of athletes, particularly black athletes, using their platform to speak out on issues of racial justice. Uh, what's your take on that development? And do you see it as positive for the broader society? And what would happen if something similar happened in the world of NASCAR? Well, I absolutely think it's great that athletes use their power and influence um, for the greater good of the country and mankind. 
You know, I really do. I think what like LeBron James does and Dwayne Wade uh, did um, in the NBA using their platform was great. I commend them. I'm, I applaud them. Um, there is a responsibility when you're, you know, in a position like that of influence to do that sort of thing. You know, Colin uh, Kaepernick and what he's done. You know, a lot of people really despise that sort of thing. But you know what? Too bad. I, I feel sorry for those what I would consider narrow minded individuals that want to keep the quote unquote power structure intact. You know, I think everybody should be equal. And in this country, we're losing ground in terms of equality, absolutely losing ground since the new presidential administration or current presidential administration has been in place. And I've used my platform to the degree that I can to speak out on social justice. A couple of years ago, I was on CNN um, with a show hosted by Brooke Baldwin, whereby we talked about how a couple of NASCAR owners really despised the fact that Colin Kaepernick was kneeling for the flag. And they brought me in to ask me my take about that situation because what the owner said is that if any of my employees kneeled, they would be immediately fired. And I said, you know, here's the situation with regard to that statement. They have the power to fire their employees because they are just that, employees of their race team. Um, I, on the other hand, would look at it like it would have been interesting had I been racing at the NASCAR level, at the top level at that time when that was so prevalent and what I would have done. I bet you I would have been probably booed as well because I just cannot stand for the oppression that people of color continue to endure. And so when a professional athlete has the opportunity to stand up and point out wrongs, I commend them wholeheartedly. Mm. And thank you so much for that answer. And I really do appreciate the time you've given us. I do have to ask you, I know that you're um, working on a book, that you've put a book together. I, thought, I think that's uh, well due, if not overdue, to get a book from you, Mr. Lester. I, I'm curious what message you want to get across with this book. What, what's the mission statement? What's the goal of putting out uh, a memoir? Well, the working title of the memoir is Winning in Reverse. And it's a story of pursuing your passion, overcoming obstacles, and living your dream. And a lot of what's characterized in the memoir is what we've talked about, but there's a whole lot more. It talks about the fact that I was discouraged to become a race car driver, but I knew what I wanted to do with my life and I overcame the obstacles. And I point to a, eight specific key learnings and techniques that allowed me to be successful. And I point them out in this memoir. But it's something that speaks to how I was able to break through in a sport that is so closed to people of color, how I was able to be fairly unique in what I pursued and made it to the top level of the sport, and how I did that at a late age when most people become very comfortable in what it is that they do. People thought I was crazy to leave my high-tech successful career to pursue something where I didn't know whether or not I was going to make it or not. When I say success, successful, I define success as happiness, not how many dollars you make. But when you get up in the morning, are you happy? Are you looking forward to the day? When you go to bed, are you looking forward to the next day? Or are you, are, are you just going through the motions? I did not want to just go through the motions. And so this memoir talks about my journey, how I was able to break through in such a closed environment and the things that allowed me to be successful. I think there are a lot of things that will resonate with people of color, with people that are older in life, even people that are younger in life and pursuing things despite what anybody says, 
to deter them. It's a matter of believing in yourself and making your dreams come true. And so I'm hoping that this memoir will resonate with the audience. I, I certainly think it will. Um, and I'd be, I ask this of all guests who come on the podcast, and I'm, I'm really curious about what you're going to say. Uh, people who tend to be athletic, people who tend to be creative, uh, tend to have uh, soundtracks that they work their lives to. Uh, what kind of music did you listen to either in the garage, uh, when you were racing? What was the soundtrack to what you did? <laughs> what I did then and what I listened to then is the same stuff I listen to now. I mean, it's unbelievable. You would think I'm still a kid, but I'm still current and up on hip hop and R&B. You know, I mean, if I was to follow my dad's footsteps, I'd be into jazz. And I, while I like jazz and, and what have you, and if it was following my mother, it would have been classical music. I'm hardcore hip hop and R&B. It's like my kids are 16 and 13 and they probably can't believe that I listen to the same stuff they're listening to. So I'm still a kid at heart. Nice. <laughs> hey, Bill Lester, really do appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Dave, it's been a pleasure. And if I can encourage folks to follow me on Twitter, I appreciate it. Oh, please. Bill, Bill underscore Lester. So I'm looking forward to interacting with as many of you as possible. So the, your Twitter handle is at Bill underscore Lester. We'll be sure to put that out on our Twitter handle as well. And uh, good luck to you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the retirement of Andrew Luck. So here's the quote from ESPN radio and TV host Dan Lebitard about the abrupt and utterly shocking retirement of 29-year-old Indianapolis Colts Pro Bowl quarterback Andrew Luck. Lebitard said, Football broke his body and mind, and at the very end, his city finalized the transaction by breaking his heart. Lebitard was referring to the boos that rained down on Luck's head as he walked off the field following last Saturday's preseason game against the Chicago Bears. The face of the franchise was supposed to have a retirement press conference the following day after talking about the decision to his team. Instead, in a very 21st century media twist, ESPN reporter Adam Schefter broke the news on Twitter during the game and the fans of Indiana, getting the news instantaneously on their various devices, jeered with rage. This is a story that's been unfolding like an onion, many layers and no shortage of tears. There's a narrative about the toll this game has taken on Andrew Luck's young body. A lacerated kidney, concussions, torn abdominal muscles, a shoulder injury that cost him a season, and mysterious ankle ailments that promised more surgeries and rehab. There's the reaction of Luck himself, someone whose reputation for loving football is renowned, saying that age 29 the sport had ceased to be fun. Then there is the palpable fear in the offices of the National Football League about what the retirement of luck represents and the attendant public relations hit. Behind the pageantry, the warplanes flying overhead, and the tailgating keg stands, this is a game largely played by black people from poor backgrounds for a largely white affluent fan base in the stands. 70% of the league is black and top tickets cost hundreds of dollars. A player like Andrew Luck masks that reality. He graduated from Stanford. He comes from an affluent family. He is white. He played football because he wanted to, not because he had to. And he chose to walk away. He decided that he didn't need this anymore. That the game he loved, not to mention the fans he loved, didn't love him back. Luck also highlights the fact that the more we know about head injuries, concussions, and the toll that the game takes on the human body, the only workplace with a 100% injury rate, as the union is fond of saying, the more middle-class parents are keeping their kids from the sport. As the San Francisco Chronicle observed last year in a devastating expose, 
the number of high school boys playing tackle football has been in slow but steady decline for nearly a decade. The piece shows how the sport has declined dramatically over the last 10 years in one-time hotbeds like Ohio and Michigan, with the overall number of players dropping nationally by 75,000 at a time when high school sports on the whole have expanded. The numbers of young people playing have also dropped. As Forbes reported, because affluent white families are much more likely to focus their male children on lacrosse, fewer concussions and a greater social cachet for parents who want a future Wall Street Raider rather than an Oakland Raider. Losing players like Andrew Luck promises a future when the mask is ripped clean off the NFL and the sport is plainly poor black players playing for wealthy white fans living vicariously through fantasy football and a violence they don't have to personally endure. As for Luck, when he cried through his press conference, one couldn't help but think he wasn't crying only over losing his team and the harsh reaction of fans so quick to show him that their bond was only as strong as his next touchdown pass. Andrew Luck was also crying for a sport that over a generation has changed culturally, even if the violence is the same. A league that once depended on a community's coming together to collectively cheer a team now demands poverty to produce players and disposable wealth among fans whose identity revolves around the violent collisions they consume as voyeurs. It's a sport that's sustainable only on the ugliest possible terms, the denial of the humanity of players and the acceptance of that denial by the league and the fans themselves. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down. The awards we give out for people who are using the platform of sports to stand up and people who just need to sit down. The Just Stand Up Award was an easy one. It goes to the fans of the Portland Timbers. That is a soccer team uh, out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, The Portland Timbers turned their game against the Seattle Sounders into an anti-fascist demonstration last week. Portland, as you might know, has been ground zero for all sorts of Nazis, thugs, and fascists who are coming into town to try to start trouble, use up city resources, and crack heads. Well, the Portland Timbers fans did something amazing. First and foremost, in their raucous game against the Seattle Sounders, that's their number one rival, they stayed silent for the first 33 minutes of the match. And the Seattle fans did the same. Just an eerie silence for 33 minutes. Why did they choose 33 minutes? Well, because uh, the Nazis banned an anti-fascist group called the Iron Front in 1933. So the 33 was very connected to that. And then at the end of the 33 minutes, they exploded in sound and held up all sorts of Iron Front symbols. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because the MSL, Major League Soccer, uh, banned the use of political symbols at matches. So they were openly defying the ban of Major League Soccer. And you know what? One of the players on the Portland Timbers showed up for the match wearing an Iron Front symbol as well. See, they didn't want anti-fascist symbols at the games because uh, Major League Soccer said, no, that's too much of a representation of Antifa, the anti-fascist grouping. And Portland Timbers fans were saying, no, being an anti-fascist is actually a good thing, and we're going to show that. We're going to defy the fascists who come to our town and bust heads. We're going to defy the rules of Major League Soccer, and we're going to defy the owners 
of the Portland Timbers, who are the Paulson family, as in Henry Paulson and his son Merritt. You might remember Henry Paulson as the person who bailed out the banks under the Bush administration back in 2008. So they were just defying all sorts of entrenched power in this country, and it was a beautiful thing uh, to witness. Big shout-out to the Portland Timbers, and big shout-out to my friend who I interviewed a couple weeks ago on the show, Jules Boykoff, who was at that match and gave me the blow-by-blow, and we wrote up an article for The Nation magazine about it, if people want to check that out. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down goes to Sean Carter, Jay-Z, who announced his deal this week with the National Football League, the Inspire Change Initiative, the NFL and Rock Nation joint venture, which will show everybody how woke the NFL is. So what's the Inspire Change Adventure? Well, it's going to be uh, hip-hop artists and Megan Trainer, who's all about the hip-hop, uh, performing at NFL events. And it's going to mean a new line of Inspire Change Apparel put out by Jay-Z, which will go to supporting Inspire Change causes. No word yet on what Inspire Change causes are or where the money's going. But right now we're looking at uh, the NFL being woke, the Washington Redskins being woke, and putting up these musical performances and uh, saying Inspire Change. Yes, the NFL. Shamelessness has its privileges. Jay-Z as well. Shamelessness has its privileges. And like I've been saying all along, this is not chess. This is not social justice. It's not even really selling out. This is just capitalism. Jay-Z is a billionaire, and this is how capitalists do their business. It's, it's uh, pretty ugly and pretty ridiculous. And they're stepping on the legacy of Colin Kaepernick in order to be able to do it. And that's what gets us to a part of the show that we like to call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. Right after Jay-Z and the NFL announced their Inspire Change partnership, Colin Kaepernick put out a very interesting tweet that I want to share with you all. Colin Kaepernick put out a tweet that says, Reading always gives me clarity. And he put out a highlighted section of a book called Black Awakening in Capitalist America, a 1969 book by Robert L. Allen. And I want to read the section that Colin Kaepernick highlighted. Think about Jay-Z and the NFL deal as I read this to you. In summary, the cultural nationalists drape themselves in the mantle of nationalism, but upon examination, it is seen that their programs, far from aiding in the achievement of black liberation and freedom from exploitation, would instead weld the black communities more firmly into the structure of American corporate capitalism. This reformist or bourgeois nationalism, through its chosen vehicle of black capitalism, may line the pockets and boost the social status of the black middle class and black intelligentsia, but it will not ease the oppression of the ordinary ghetto dweller. What the cultural nationalists seek is not an end to oppression, but the transfer of the oppressive apparatus into their own hands. They call themselves nationalists and exploit the legitimate nationalist feelings of black people in order to advance their own interests as a class. And chief among those interests is their desire to become brokers between the white rulers and the black ruled. Good gracious. Again, think about Jay-Z as you think about that passage that Colin Kaepernick highlighted. And think about that book, checking it out, Black Awakening in Capitalist America by Robert Allen from 1969. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to the great Bill Lester, the trailblazing Bill Lester, uh, our first NASCAR driver we've ever had on Edge of Sports. So uh, we did a little trailblazing of our own this week, happy to say. Although he is capital T, we're merely lowercase t. Uh, thank you so much to everybody out there listening to the show. Remember, please subscribe to The Nation magazine, thenation.com slash subscribe. When you do so, you're supporting this podcast, and that means everything to us. Uh, if you like the show, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash edgesportspod. Uh, for everybody out there listening, also, please go to Apple. Please leave a rating. Please leave a note. All that stuff makes a big difference to the future and the ability of us to do this program. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.